Okay, everybody, thank you for joining another Prague Report Top 5 podcast. So far, we've had a really great run, some really great guests, and we hope you're enjoying all the podcasts and programming on Prague Report Radio, on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. You can subscribe to all our channels and keep up with everything, all the news and info. Of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Prague Report for all upcoming news and interviews and everything else. Uh, of course, we have today, uh, because this band is kicking off uh, something that's not common in, in Prague, and it's quite an achievement. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary, kicking off another tour, celebrating their humongous and historic catalog. And, of course, they entered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you know them from all their great music. We're going to be covering the legendary Prague band Yes, which really needs no introduction of course, if you're listening to the Prog Report, you know all about Yes and you own all their music and you know all the tunes. So what uh, I've been able to do here is bring two guests along that are really experts in the Yes world. They're going to put me to shame with their knowledge on it. I am just going to try and keep up. Um, so first we have somebody that I guess you know very well now from his Yes Years podcast on the Prog Report Radio. And of course, he's joined us previously on some top five. So we're bringing back Mr. Jeff Bailey from the UK. Hello, Roy. Hello, John. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh please say hi. Well, of course, the John, the John that Jeff so kindly referred to is our special guest for today. Uh, really accomplished broadcaster, journalist, writer, uh, and has worked with Yes over 30 years in every capacity. Uh, and he also hosts the Cruise to the Edge and the Moody Blues Cruise and all those sorts of things. So uh, I'd like to welcome John Kirkman. Hi, how are you doing? All right, thanks you guys for being here, John, especially. I know uh, you're always a busy guy with all the stuff that you're doing, so thank you for taking a few minutes. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Share your expertise. Um, so we have quite a task here. I mean, this is a band that has 21 studio albums all the way from 1969, uh, the self-titled debut to, uh, 2014, heaven and earth and everything in between legendary things like cruise to the, uh, close to the edge, uh, going for the one fragile, all those things. I'm sure we'll cover some of those and I'm sure we can count on Jeff to throw in a few albums. We have <laughs> absolutely no expectation to be on the list and that's why we brought him on. Um, so, uh, Jeff, uh, list albums at your own risk. And uh, so real, you know, real quick guys, without uh, giving too much away, because I'm sure we'll get into some more stories uh, as we in introduce our choices uh, uh, album wise. But uh, John, talk about, you know, a little bit about first meeting the band and, and your introduction to them sort of on a, on a personal working relationship that you have. Well, I, I first got into Yes via a, a British TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test, and uh, they had a, a special TV special on called Live from the Rainbow, which was essentially Yes songs and what became Yes songs. And the first song that kind of hooked me was And You and I. So my very first tour uh, that I saw live when I was 15 was the Tales from Topographic Oceans tour, which a lot of people are going, wow, great. Big problem, when I saw them, the album hadn't come out. So <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to an entire double album before even hearing it and getting used to it. Uh, the first time I met them was, funnily enough, on the drama tour, and it was backstage 
at a gig uh, near me called the D-Side Leisure Centre and Chris Squire came right up to me and said, hi, I'm Chris. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that was the first <laughs> meeting. But um, yeah, I've worked with lots of the guys from Yes on various projects and actually um, was involved in um, a Yes live album called Union Live. I was the executive producer on that particular release when it oh, came wow. out. So I did not um, know that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. I know. No, it was really funny. Somebody said, I don't believe you. And I, I scanned the credits and he said, you could have photoshopped that. And I said, well, I didn't. But, <laughs> so, so, but hey, you know, whatever. But yeah, it's um, so that was an interesting. I put all that together for a company and uh, I worked with all of my, in fact, just um, the uh, deluxe edition of Chris Squire's Fish Out of Water. I worked with Chris mm. on that in 2006. So that's just come out. Um, we were going to do another one. So unfortunately, Chris took ill and sadly passed away before yeah. we could get that done. I was watching you on my TV just last night, John, as I was wading through that box set. Well, you know. Although I, I, did, have, I did have the original uh, edition of it as well, that that, that video. Yeah. But it was great, it's to, a, well, great to watch. The new, version, the new version is absolutely fantastic. I'm not just yeah. saying that because I'm part of it. It's, it's my favorite solo Yes album. And, they, and that's not to diminish anything any of the other guys have done. But for me, that always was my favorite solo sort of yes album and yeah. uh I, it still is it's a remarkable piece of music and um I, again as i said the new edition is absolutely amazing great uh yeah. jeff um you know jeff you host our yes years 50 podcast uh and john basically what jeff is doing is running through the five decades of of yes and and going through uh, just by segments of year. So, you know, and one of them will be just 1971, 1981, and 1991, and so on. And then, you know, playing a few tracks and talking about stories, and, and that's been very interesting to do. So, so Jeff, talk about your introduction to the band. Okay, so my introduction being... Uh younger slightly younger than their 50 years and being based in the uk i suppose the first time i encountered um any yes elements were would have been john and vangelis being in the uk album charts and then um john anderson guesting on mike oldfield's crises album and uh, he sang a track in that and back in those days i was borrowing vinyl albums from my local public library and i i'd so i'd heard about this band yes and i went down and borrowed three albums the three that they had which were the yes album uh drama and 90125 and uh, one of the things just talk, when i talk about the s years podcast is that you know so i got those three albums you know and this is before the internet so you couldn't really find out a lot about a band if you didn't know much about them but what i did notice was between those three albums there were two drummers two keyboard players two guitar players two vocalists <laughs> and one bass player um and so the first thing i learned about yes was it's a band where the lineup always changes and i think that's part of why i, I i've stayed a fan I, I don't tend to belong to a faction i sort of look at yes music as a whole irrespective of of who's in the band and i think then you know in the show and in my own record collection i've been delving deep into their solo careers. In fact, I got a Patrick Moraz CD through this morning that I'd never had before. Um, and I just love exploring in and out and around the band. And um, yeah, like like some of their albums better than others, but I'm a fan of Yes as a whole. 
Yeah, well, they certainly have no shortage of lineup changes, that's for sure. John, do you know the count by any chance of how many members they've had? Well, when I did my uh, book, I, I think it was 18. And I've spoken <laughs> to, I think, 16 or 17 of the 18 members of Yes mm. at that time. I, um, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't count Eddie Jobson. Not that Eddie Jobson isn't a wonderful musician, because he mm. is. He's incredible. And all the work he's done over the years with bands like Curb Dare and UK and with Frank Zappa. And I, I think he's an amazing musician. But according to Trevor Rabin, he was literally only in a matter of weeks, although he was considered a full-time member at the time. Um, he didn't actually tour with the band and he didn't record with them. So I, I didn't interview Eddie, but I've spoken to him, of course, because uh, he's been on Cruise to the Edge a couple of times. And a lovely guy is as well. But um, yeah, I think it's about 18. Yeah, it that's what slightly I, more than that. Now. I think that's what I've read <laughs> as well, but you never know if you're forget, forgetting someone with this many people. Um, all right, cool. So uh, good intros. We're going to uh, kick off, basically, we're going to go through the uh, any album is, is fair game, any era, any lineup you want to choose. And uh, I guess I'm going to uh, kick it off um, with, I think it's going to be an, a, a rare one on this list, but, you know, we'll find out because I got into the band in the 80s. I got my introduction to the band was 90125. And that's not my choice here, but that was my intro. And after that was Big Generator. And so, yes, for me was Trevor Rabin. That was um, before I really got a little older and went started going back into, you know, Fragile and, and some of those things. So um, the Trevor Rabin lineup and Trevor Rabin himself was one of my favorite musicians. His solo album was a favorite album of mine growing up, uh, Can't Look Away. And um, so when the band came back in 94 with Talk, uh, I was thrilled and I love that album. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great album. Now, fortunately, the story why that album sort of failed, and John, I'm sure you know, is that the record label that they signed with for that album ran out of money, and mm -hmm. there was no promotion, and no one oh. ever knew about that album. And I, one of the things I remember about it was I actually went to see them on that tour, and it was supposed to be like some big surround sound speaker thing and an arena and everything. And it, it, they had played, they were playing down here in, in Miami at the time at, at the big basketball arena, nice size place, good 15, 20,000 seater or something. And uh, it was really not full. Like, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it seemed like no one knew the show was there. And I think, again, that had to do with the record label at probably at the time just saying, Hey, you go, go out and do it. Cause we have no money to promote this thing. So um, that, that would be my guess anyway, cause it, it still was yes. And they still had a, a fairly, you know, popular fan base at the time. So uh, anyway, my choice for number five is talk. Uh, I love the, the epics on, on it, the calling endless dream, that whole suite at the end. Um, there's a couple of songs that Trevor Rabin wrote with Roger Hudson which are which were really cool and poppy, and I'm a big Super Tramp fan. So um, yeah, I'm gonna go with Talk at number five. I think that's maybe my left curve choice, but I felt like I wanted to include that in here.
Well, I, I actually really love Talk, and I think it's a totally underrated album. And I, there's some great material on there, but it, it, it had a difficult birth, according to Trevor Rabin, uh, because it was recorded digitally. And, and a bit like a sort of modern-day Sgt. Pepper, where the Beatles put two four-track machines together. Yes, put two computers together in order to give themselves the tracks to work with. And when they were actually recording, Trevor told me the guy from the computer company and the software company was talking to his head office every night trying to get new codes in order to make it happen for them <laughs> the next day. And Trevor actually said it took a couple of years off my life working on that album, <laughs> believe me. So, But it's a great record, a fabulous record. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I was actually reading an interview with Tony Kay that I found, and he, he described it as, you know, Trevor's... Trevor's total vision for for yes, I mean he he seemed to suggest that Trevor was very much completely in control of this one, and that was sort of the terms in which which he made it. And I guess I think the studio that we talk, you talked about there was Trevor's garage. Uh, it was, and, yeah. and so you know it it was very much crafted, but an awful lot of John in the, in there too. I think probably not that much of anybody else, but. Um, well, there's yeah. some beautiful vocals from John on there, like I Am Waiting, which is just amazing. And they yeah. and actually the ARW lineup on their second run that they did here, they added that song to the to the set. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, great. Thank you for uh, agreeing with me slightly on there, which is cool. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to jump to uh, Jeff, your first choice, your number five. Okay, well, I, I maybe don't have as many curveballs as you might think, but I think my number five is probably my my least predictable choice um, and what I think is the great overlooked Yes album or uh, block of material. Um, so I'm going to go for the album that's called Key Studio, which is a compilation of the studio tracks that was on, were on the Keys to Ascension 1 and 2 album. This was uh, Anderson Howe, Squire, Wakeman White, Getting Back Together, produced by Billy Sherwood, uh, mostly uh, long songs, short songs, epics like Mind Drive, uh, that that is shorter, poppier songs. But when you look at the credits for that album, you know, songs are composed pretty much by every band. Every band member has a hand in writing. You've got Billy Sherwood, who's completely a massive fan, so who is sympathetic in terms of what Yes should sound like how it should be produced without maybe the interference that albums like Union or ABWH that went before it um, would have had. And um, I know that Rick Wakeman said at the time he was, I mean, he left uh, after that, I think due to management issues, but um, you know, Rick was very much disappointed that particularly the 50 odd minutes from Keys to Ascension 2 ended up being stuck as a kind of second disc to a live album rather than actually being finished off and put out there. And I think, you know, if we had been, you know, if we're a, a lot of Yes World is waiting for new studio material for from from the Steve Howe, Alan White lineup or the Anderson, Raven Wakeman lineup. And I think if right now they produced an album like those tracks, you know, the fans would be absolutely overwhelmed and say, this is exactly what we've waited for and wanted. And yet that album came out mid-90s as sort of, bonus tracks on live albums and right. disappeared most of it was never played live um so, but i think i think as a collection of songs it's it's really really great well that is a left uh, left field choice a little bit so that's cool yeah 
Well, I, I think it's a really good album, but I, and I think I think you're absolutely right there, Jeff. I think uh, the actual marketing was totally wrong. They should have just put it all together as a studio album rather than tagged them on to two volumes of a live album. I think the live album should have been live from San Obispo and then Keys to Ascension should have been the title of the studio. Oh, absolutely. I think it yeah. was, I, I, I thought it was confusing myself when it first came out. Cause you didn't, yeah. you didn't know if it's a live album with just some extra garbage bonus tracks, which some bands do. It did, you didn't mm. really feel like it was a new album necessarily. Yeah. Well, it, it had the look and the feel of a contractual obligation album, but when you hear it, there's no contractual obligation there at all. This is, yes, firing literally on all cylinders, and I think it's probably one of their better latter-day albums. And it, it's, it's sad because a lot of people, even Yes fans, are, are a little bit unaware of that, and it, it's, it kind of fell through the racks, sadly. Yeah. It's yeah. a really good album. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. Cool, John. Let's see what you got. Number five. Well, it's, this is probably going to make a few people laugh because um, parts of it I love and parts of it I am not a big fan of. And my number five, and because I mentioned it earlier, I went to see Yes on the Tales from Topographic Oceans tour and they played the whole of the album before I'd even heard it. But my number five is the album Tales from Topographic Oceans. And the reason is it's worth having for the track number one, The Revealing Science of God, and track number four, Ritual uh, Nous Sommes du Soleil. Um, I'm not too keen on sides two and three of their album. They have their moments, but I think Rick Waitman summed it up very well by saying there's a lot of padding, and I think it, that padding actually comes in on sides two and three. Right. Uh, there's some great parts of it, but for me, it's definitely at sides one and four, which, of course, they went out and played uh, in the last 18 months or so. Yeah, that's and that's my, that's my number five, and I still love that album, and I still play The Revealing Science of God literally once a week. It's a wonderful track. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's good to see that that album, I think over the last five, 10 years, really started getting more appreciated, I think, than it did uh, mm. when it first came out. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think at the time, uh, a lot of people thought it might have been a bridge too far. What, four sides, just four tracks? Yeah. Uh, and not many bands have really done that. I mean, I think before that, I mean, really, it had been the realms of classical music where you just had one track per side, like a symphony or whatever. Um, and I think, yes, we're breaking new ground in many ways there. And uh, like I said, I think it's lasted a lot longer than, than some of the other albums because people keep kind of going back to it and feel they ought to reinvestigate it. Yeah. And, uh, but there's some of the most wonderful melodies on, on that album that you will find from any band, not least Yes. 
Yeah. What I, I also remember, which was really a surprise on that, uh, uh, the Progressive Nation at Sea Cruise, where John Anderson joined Transatlantic that, that mm. last night. Yeah. Everybody knew he was going to do that. And you figured, okay, he's going to come out. They're going to do Roundabout and Starship Trooper and, you know, whatever. And then the first song that, that he made the band learn and play was the side one of <laughs> Topographic yeah. Ocean. And now everybody was like, you've got to be kidding. They're playing this. And here we went for 20 minutes. It was it was pretty yeah. insane. Well, well, let me tell you something funny about this, because I, I can remember. Now, bear in mind, I was 15 when I went to see the band on that tour. And at 15, you're a little bit impatient. And I'd sort of seen them doing sort of, uh, sort of close to the edge and yes songs. And I thought, wow, great. But they came on. They did close to the edge, opened up with close to the edge. And then John said, right, we're going to play our new album. And they played it in its entirety. And I remember telling Chris Squire and I said, you know, revealing Santa God, great halfway through side two. I was, I, I'm actually thinking, when are you going to play something I know? <laughs> and, uh, and he laughed and he said, you know, we still don't quite get it right sometimes. And he said, I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, I'll go with it. It was a lot of music to kind of digest in one sitting. And he said, of course, as you say, the album hadn't been out for the start of the tour. So he said a lot of people were hearing it for the first time. And he said, I imagine there were one or two people felt the same way as you did. <laughs> I said, well, in my, in, I was 15. And I said, you know, at that age, you know, come on, get on with it. Didn't Genesis do the same thing with Lamb Lies Down on Broadway? They did. They right? did. They yeah. toured it and no one had just come out. No one had heard it yet. And they played the whole thing. Well, no, they, not before the UK. The album came out in the November in, in the UK and we didn't see them until the following April. So we kind of had time to digest that. I mean, it might have been, it was, I think it was a bit different in America. But yeah. uh, in the UK, we had time to get used to it. But uh, I was hearing um, Tales from Topographic Oceans before I'd ever heard a note and I was hearing it for the very first time live. That's awesome. Hey, looking back, it's pretty special. Although uh, it is, I, I it, and it yeah. was. Yeah. I have to admit it's an album. I didn't pay much attention to until they did ritual on the symphonic tour, which I saw in Dublin. And that was mm. the point where for me, seeing it live was actually what kind of um, turned me on to it really. It's cool. funny, actually, on the recent tour, though, a lot of people have been saying, why are they only playing sides one and four? I want to hear all of it. <laughs> I'm thinking, I wonder if these people would have wanted to have heard all of it back in the day when they first did it, I mean, <laughs> without hearing it. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, really, isn't it? I mean, when time passes, you've got, used, you've got time to get used to something. Right. So yes, I think absolutely. at the time when it's happening, you're not always aware of where things are going and how to sort of take them on board or absorb them. Yeah, no, 100%. All right. Well, those are really good uh, choices for the beginning. All right. I'm going to go on with uh, my number four. And, um, you know, I had I was debating between this and the other sort of big hit album to put on here. But I went with 
uh, Fragile, 1971, the big celebrated album. Um, I'm torn with this album sometimes, which is why maybe it's not a little bit higher for me because I think some of it is the best music the band ever did. And then I just wish there was more songs on it. And, and so I think a lot of it has to do with the time of when it came out, when albums were shorter and uh, you know, there wasn't this, this uh, urgency to put on a, a, like 20 songs and, and that type of thing. And, and so there's a few shorter cuts and things that are on there, which are fine pieces of music, but when you want to sit and listen to an actual song, and that was always my minor sort of issue with it. But um, the song, the standalone, you know, longer songs are four of the best songs the band ever wrote. So, uh, you know, Roundabout, South Side of the Sky, Long Distance Runaround, and Heart of the Sunrise, Heart of the Sunrise being possibly their best song. So I had to put that on the list. I think listening to it now from beginning to end and when they played it uh in in its entirety a few years ago on tour um you just realize what a brilliant piece of work it is it's just uh, to be writing that kind of stuff back in 71 it's just insane and groundbreaking in, in every way yeah and i think what you've said what you've said is the reason why it's not in my top five is because uh, um i do i i think as an album it, you know it is a very iconic thing but in terms of actually you know, if if I had to pick five albums to to not listen to any others, it probably wouldn't be in my list simply because I think the the shorter tracks we talk about tales having filler. I I think that the shorter solo tracks are on on the whole uh, not non essential. Well, I think if I can remember rightly, when Chris Squire was talking to me about that album, he said they had six weeks to make it. Which, if you yeah. think of <laughs> only taking six weeks to make that album it's not bad <laughs> yeah, um, yeah absolutely i think i think that's why there's a lot of the solo things in plus you bear in mind that rick waitman had just joined the band hmm. and um the four tracks I, I agree roy i mean south side of the sky when they still do that now it sends a shiver down my spine that is an incredible track of course when the band brought it to america that was a big hit for them in america and they had a big hit single with roundabout and they, they actually, at the time, did not like the edit of Roundabout. They just thought, it's, not, it's a bit naff, I think, was St what Steve Howe said and Chris Scott said. We weren't very excited by it, but the record company said, do it and you'll get radio play. And he said, they were right, but, yeah. I, you know, I didn't think we needed to edit it. But uh, it's an incredible album. And I think, as you say, when they performed it live in its entirety, uh, I think you got the context of the whole album. But I think the shorter pieces were just there to give everyone a bit of a, a moment to shine. And right. uh, as I said, because time was tight. Yeah, it was sort of between, uh, you know, because the Yes album is a similar type of thing that also has like these uh, iconic, you know, massive hit songs that everybody knows with a, with a few other ones thrown in between. Um, and then this one. So, but I, I opted with this one because the standalone songs on it, I, I think I, I like a little bit better. But either way, you know. Love comes to you and then after
Jeff, you're number four. Okay, my number four. This is an album that I have to admit, um, despite being one of the first batch of three albums that I that I talked about getting, is an album I've really started to appreciate in full. I think over the last few years, um, and that's nine hundred one two five. And I think what I've come to recognize over the last number of years is, you know, at the heart of it here, you have Cinema, a three-stroke, four-piece band who are just an incredible rock band, you know, rhythm section. You know, I don't think the drums and bass sound better on any album, on any Yes album than they do on 90125. And the Trevor Rabin, Chris Squire, John Anderson, and probably a little bit of Trevor Horn vocal harmony. Again, they are the, I, I believe they're the strongest vocals on any Yes album. And, you know, again, sort of perceived wisdom was John Anderson jumped on at the end and, um, you know, just sort of sang what he was given. But I think there's a, you know, I, th- I really do think John turned you know some of trevor's more formulaic sort of rock and love songs into something that truly became yes and you know when you you know so tracks like you know cinema you know a really great progressive piece um city of love hearts our song you know even the less well-known songs on that album are uh, you know are really really strong and you know something like leave it you know, and owner of a lonely heart, but you know, remembered for their production, remembered for the fair lights, remembered because they were singles. But actually, when you listen to them musically, they're you know the production is just absolutely incredible. They're just brilliant pieces of work, and that that's an album that I've really come to love. Um, that I didn't used to like that much, which is why it's my number four. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love, like I said, that was my introduction to the band. A funny thing that I remember now, and it's and it's really funny to me looking back on it because you got to imagine I'm in I'm I'm sort of a young kid at the time, and MTV was big, and I I didn't know from Yes before, and you're seeing Owner of a Lonely Heart, and then you then I think the next single in America at least with the video was Leave It. And I honestly thought it was like Trevor Rabin was co-lead singer. I had no idea. <laughs> they made him look like it. And those songs featured him and they, and the camera. You know, one of the videos, if you look at, um, uh, like, I think it's uh, Love Will Find A Way or Rhythm of Love, one of those videos that came out from Big Generator, they only show Trevor Rabin. Like, it was... <laughs> And Don Anderson, they never show in the videos. <laughs> it was really a marketing thing because he was like the good-looking young guy and they were trying to make him the star of the band. Well, it's funny, actually, because back in the day when it was cinema, Trevor was the lead singer. Uh, he was the lead singer in the band before John came in. And the record company said, look, we don't think this is going to work as a four-piece. We think you need a frontman." And Trevor Horn was going to be the singer at one point, believe it or not. And then Chris said, well, I think I'll go and see John. And that's when John came in. But he did have a big input. He changed some of the lyrics around. And Trevor said, no, that's fine. You do what you're going to do. And, and again, you know, Trevor Horn changed some of the words around as well on things like Honorable Lonely Heart. He's got a, yeah. a writer's credit. And he's, he's actually singing on a lot of the album. Some of it credited, some of it uncredited. And uh, as he said, you know, I'm all over that album. And I can tell because I can, I mean, there are shades of drama in there. You can hear the difference in the backing vocals. And Trevor was a very, very important part of that, that whole setup because uh, 
you know, he'd written a lot of the songs. A lot of the album was written before they got the deal and before, as Tony Kay said, the record company, once they heard John was involved, saw Dollars, saw Yes, and that was it. Right. End of. And, that, you know, it was a done deal. And Trevor wasn't that happy about that. But, you know, he kind of got used to it, I guess. Yeah, I think it turned, turned out to be the right choice. So they, at least in that case, the record company knew what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Look up. All right, John, what do you have for your fourth choice? Well, my fourth choice is the follow-up album to Tales from Topographic Oceans, Relayer. And I have to say, when I first heard Relayer, and it was three tracks, which is very like um, Close to the Edge, that just had three tracks on. And I just thought, uh, right, great. Patrick Moraz, I loved him with Refugee. This is going to be great. And it was a really hard album for me to get into. Once I got into it, I loved it. But I can remember thinking, Wow, what is this? I mean, it was very jazz rock. Sound Chaser sounded like something the Mahavishnu Orchestra might have done. Hmm. And, um, and I think that the funny thing is, one of the stories about that is that they'd, they'd actually auditioned loads and loads of keyboard players, including Vangelis, yeah. to replace Rick Wakeman. And when Patrick Moraz was um, auditioned or asked to audition. Patrick, uh, Patrick was picked up by Brian Lane and Brian apologized because he was only picking him up in his Jaguar. He said, my Rolls Royce is being fixed in the garage, apparently. That was the quote. <laughs> and they went, round to, uh, they went round to Chris Squires and uh, Vangelis's equipment was still set up and they said, well, okay, we're going to play something. What would you play along to that? So he said, I spent some time tuning it all up, all the keyboards up. And then I listened to it again and then I played something. Uh, on Sound Chaser, and he said that actually ended up on the album. My audition ended up on the album, mm. the finished album. But it, it was very, very jazz oriented, which I think came from um, Patrick because Patrick, you know, had his finger in lots of different pies, but jazz was certainly one of them. But once I got into it, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And of course, Gates of Delirium. I mean, who can't like that song? I think every Yes fan has a real soft spot for that particular song. And uh, yeah. Again, they've done it a few times live over the years. Right. And it's funny because Jeff Downs actually said he'd love to have a go at that. And who knows, maybe on the American tour, maybe they'll do that. Maybe Patrick will jump in with them in Philadelphia. You never know, do you? Yeah. I had my fingers crossed for that in London at, at the Palladium show. They, uh, it's, oh, yeah. Some of the band members had slightly hinted at that, but it, it didn't happen. But the Americans will get it, I'm sure. One of, one of the things I, I noticed... Um, I was just in doing a bit of research for for the one of the future podcasts was actually the timeline around that because I was I was just trying to work it out and from what I can gather Rick Wakeman left in the middle of May 74 and Relayer came out at the end of November so it came out less than 6 months after he left and as you said John they tried out a lot of keyboard players so as far as I can gather Moraz actually first hooked up with them in about August August the 4th yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> There's the exact day. I'll go. I'll go and update. <laughs> but, um, so, so August the funny. August the fourth to the November the you know the the twenty eighth again. It's you know what three months you know yeah. to to put all of that together and put it out. But the really? the band had actually been working on it because Rick had heard the material and he said oh, there's no way I wanted to go there. He said I'd already heard the material and he said that all that big tour um, to promote it he said was was booked. And I just told Brian Lane I couldn't do it. And Brian Lane told Rick, look, swallow your pride. You're going to earn a lot of money. Do it. And he said, no, I can't. Hmm. And they tried a few of the people, and they tried people like, they, well, Blue Weaver, who'd been in the Straubs, they asked him. Uh, they, they asked Cat Stevens, keyboard player, I think Jean Rousseau, and uh, obviously Van Gellis. They asked Blue Weaver. Blue Weaver said, oh, there's no way I'm good enough for that. Why don't you get Tony Kay back in? <laughs> and then sort of Patrick's name came up. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think Patrick was the right guy at the right time. I mean, he was in very much the, the way that Rick was the right guy at the right time when he joined for Fragile. I think it was, it's quite funny how that happened for Patrick as well, similar way. Stand and fight with you, consider reminded of, and in a pack between us, a scene as we go. Going straight from that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right into the next album that came right after from and I'm my number three, which is going for the one. And you know what what happened with the band at that time? I guess they they had this run of albums every year leading up to Relayer, and then they took a few years off for going for the one. And um, I, maybe you can shed some light into into that, John. But uh, that's an album that um, God, I love the diversity of it. I think it's. It, it's an amazing album from the title track, which is like this, this crazy rocker to of course, awaken, which is this amazing Epic that, that the John Anderson, Trevor Aben, uh, Rick Wakeman lineup going on tour has been playing, uh, which, and even doing an extended version of it. It's, it's fantastic. But I, I like the, you know, wondrous stories is a beautiful little ballad. Parallels is great. I mean, the whole album is flawless. I think it's underrated actually uh, for being one of their, better albums and one that um you know i think really holds up well it's not it's not underrated by me as you, as you will hear <laughs> at some point so there you go um but it was started with patrick still in the band and work on that had started a good i think it came out a sort of late spring was it early was it 77 but yeah. it, work had begun in 76 on that album and patrick had worked on that and of course when patrick left the band the end of 76 um they kind of removed all the bits that he'd already recorded there was because it was partially recorded at that point and they recorded it in switzerland for tax reasons like a lot of other bands do they record out of the country for, for tax reasons because if you record in the uk you at that point tax in the uk was something silly like 90 pence in the pound or something so it just wasn't worthwhile so they they kind of took a year out like a lot of bands did 
at that time. But uh, it was recorded in Switzerland. And uh, of course, Patrick being Swiss, um, that, that seemed an ideal situation. Sadly, it didn't work mm. out for him or mm. uh, the band. I always wonder what it would have sounded like with Patrick in the band. And, and it's, it, I kind of have an idea, but I, I, you know, I will always forever wonder what it will sound you know, like. Awaken is so Rick Wakeman identified, right? The, 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 the opening and his, his playing on that, it seems like it couldn't be anybody else. And yet, Patrick, that's one of the songs Patrick played on. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's funny that you should say that. I mean, I think Rick, whatever Rick plays, it's undoubted. You can spot Rick a mile away. And I don't mean that he's predictable in any way. He just has a certain no, sound. Uh, he, goes, oh, he, Rick has this, he has his sound for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think Patrick, and, uh, doesn't Patrick claims credit, I think, for the, that, the... Well, get musical and a bit boring, but that cycle of fifths, the the the, mm. the circular chord pattern that that yeah. large parts of Awaken are based on, I think he he has said that that was that was his idea, and he in fact uses mm. it in one of the songs I think on the on the solo album. Um, yeah, they recorded after straight after leaving. Mm. And if you and if you think about that, actually, he's he's right. You can go well, actually, yes, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, if you understand music a little bit and you know where Patrick's come from. And the sort of things that he does, you go, actually, yes. Which isn't to say that, um, you know, yes, sort of ripped him off, anything but. But, you know, um, I think at the time, Patrick uh, pro probably had uh, every good reason to say that he had a good hand in this. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, what do you got? Well, I'm going to save you time here, Roy, because I can answer it in three words what he said. My number three was going for the one. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and again, you know, uh, you know all, all that you've said, you know, an album with great playing, great production, brilliant arrangements, you know, turn of the century, a beautiful arrangement, uh, Awaken, just incredible. Uh, the thing that struck me actually uh, with a lot of what we've, we've talked about here, and I suppose my first three choices were, keys to ascension 90125 and going for the one it struck me when i got to this point in my list that th those were all albums of fresh starts um you know so re reinvigorated band new members and i know lineups change a lot but it's interesting when you look at the albums that come after going for the one and after 90125 uh you know that often the the momentum of that energy of the the fresh lineup sometimes does not uh, continue on, but I'm not going to prejudge uh, anybody else's subsequent choices. Who knows? Tormato might be everybody's number one. Um, <laughs> well, and another great track on that album, of course, is Parallels, which was right. originally going to be on Fish Out of Water. Mm. Uh, that was that was going to be a track on Fish Out of Water, but as Chris said, they ran out of time. He said, I thought it may be a bit too different, but he's, I said, well, in hindsight, I can see it fitting on Fish Out of Water, but it's a great track. And of course, they opened up uh, the live set on the Going for the One tour with um, Parallels. Yeah, which you know, you know what else is interesting about Going for the One? It was that uh, is the first album cover, I guess, in a series that had come before it that wasn't Roger Dean. 
Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I, the, reason, the reason being, it was going to be the best yes sleeve that Roger had done. And he went, he went to uh, meet with John, and John was painting flowers, and he said, this is what I want on the cover. And Roger said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that, that. So they decided to um, part ways a little bit, and, and of course he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't draw the sleeve or paint the sleeve for going for the one or the next style on Tomato. But he he returned eventually. Thankfully, yes, that's right. <laughs> Guys, any art is any artist more identified with a band than Roger Dean with Yes? I mean, it's it's like that's his work is that band's look. I mean, I can't think of another. Maybe Storm with uh, Pink Floyd. I guess yeah would be the other one. Mm, yeah, I think so. Um, okay, John, are you? Uh, we do. Are we have a trifecta here going for the one? Or uh... no, 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 no. My third album is is what most people would probably call the definitive yes album, and that's close to the edge. And I can remember, as I've said, watching Yes, and they were on the TV, and it was a concert live from the Rainbow. And the first song that pulled me in was a track called "And You and I," which of course features on "Close to the Edge," and. I remember going to get the album and I felt a little short changed at the time because it only had three tracks on it. Right. And again, at that point I was 14. So again, you have to bear in mind that my musical taste was, if you like, molded by the Beatles and the Stones and, the, and you know, most albums had 12 tracks on. What's this? Three, three tracks. <laughs> uh, what I didn't realize that one of the tracks was 20 minutes long. Another one was 10. The other one was eight. So, you know, you did get value for money, but I, I still think, and You and I, it's one of my favorite Yes songs. I love it. it uh, there have been moments where it's brought me to tears. It's just a wonderful, uplifting piece of music. And for that alone, um, it's worth buying the album. And I do, but I, I love the title track, Close to the Edge, which the band have performed a lot over the last few years. And mm. of course, Siberian Katru. Does anybody know what a Siberian Katru is? I don't. Uh, I think I might have looked it up once, but I don't remember if I found an answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I haven't found an answer yet. Not one that I believe in, anyway, let's put it that way. But uh, yeah, but a great album, great album. Yeah, I love the diversity of those three songs, even even as long as they all are, but they're all completely different and uh, and offer a, a take on, on the Yes uh, sound. Um, but yeah, I feel like and you and I is sort of definitive John Anderson, you know, the, the way his vocal vocals on that, the songwriting. Um, mm. yeah, this, this. And, a, and uh, an interesting thing is Bill Bruford never got to play any of those tracks live until Anderson Bruford Waitman have performed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he uh, he said he would stay for the tour and Steve Howe said, no, if you're going to go, you should go now. And Steve Howe said, I always regret telling him that. And, and fair play to Alan White, he, who'd actually, when Bill disappeared once, he came, he's a friend of Eddie Offords, and he came down to the rehearsals. And uh, Bill had to go somewhere, probably to go for, I don't know, a cup of tea with Robert Fripp, perhaps. <laughs> but um, Eddie said, well, look, Alan will sit in for if you want to carry on playing. And the very first song that Alan played, with, yes, was Siberian Katru. So that was in their rehearsal room. And then they went to see him playing with Joe Cocker and said, look, we're going to America in three days. Do you fancy joining? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give each other three months. If we like each other, then we'll see how it goes. And uh, as Alan said, I've been there ever since. But he said it was great. And he said, I, I was listening to the songs all the way over on the plane. And he said, the first three gigs were great. 
and he said on the fourth night, whatever happened, he said, that was when the wheel fell off. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but he said the first three gigs were really, really good. <laughs> and the first time they played close to the edge in its entirety was at Crystal Palace, which was Alan's British debut with the band in September 1972. But it's still a remarkable album. And I, I, I do feel that a lot of Yes fans would say that is their definitive album, really. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Change only for a sight, the sound of space agreed. Between the picture of time behind the face of me. Coming quickly to terms of all expression laid. Emotion revealed is the ocean. Okay, we're getting into sort of the big, big uh, choices here. Um, my number two is going to be, uh, Jeff, you referred to this one, but I have it ranked up as my second, uh, is 90125. You know, simply because, uh, like I said, it's, it was the album that introduced me to the band, and I had I, my cassette of it with my Walkman, and I wore it to pieces. I mean, um, I love, love that album. Um, the song sold up for me today, and... Uh, even seeing the recent tours live when they're playing like Hold On and Changes and and uh, some of those songs I think is great. Owner of Lonely Heart was honestly my least favorite song on the album. It was it was it was a good song. I didn't think it was any better than anything else. I actually thought everything else was was superior to that song. But that's always been my mo. I always think the hits are worse than uh, you know the other <laughs> songs on the album. But um, you know I, I that sound for me that early '80s pop prog sound that asia was doing and that that yes did and that genesis was doing with like the the self-titled you know mama album and abacab and that i love that era of music because it sort of mixed that that uh rock hard rock sound with enough prog soloing and keyboards to make it interesting and it wasn't that formulaic as things would get later down the line so i'm i'm a big fan of that early 80s era of, of those bands and I think they did some amazing work I, looking back now not as it's not my favorite stuff compared to the 70s you know the classic Genesis classic yes etc but um, I have to give this album its props for uh, for introducing me to that music so uh, my number two is 90125 absolutely and I think you know I think it's it's very existence for good or for bad is probably the reason why we still have a yes today i think you know i mean it it, it it took them to a new level when things unfortunately were not going the right direction i'm it's not on my list but i'm a huge fan of drama i love the drama album i love trevor horn i love his voice um you know particularly uh and again not on my list but the the rework of Fly From Here with his vocals on it again, just, you know, incredible Yes music. And I think Trevor has has a lot um, to be thanked for in the Yes history for uh, f- for both his contribution as a singer, but also for making this album something that actually gave the band the shot in the arm that, that, that brought them through the 80s, where some of their peers 
you know, f- failed, you know, ELP, uh, you know, we talked Genesis went the different direction, you know, but there were other bands who, who's, whose work pretty much dried up. Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Jeff. And uh, the great thing, the two things that I remember about 90125, the first thing most people, in fact, everyone I knew at the time said, this is yes. <laughs> um, so that was one thing I always remember about it. But the second thing is, if you think about a lot of albums that came out into the 80s, and we were three years into the 80s, they always say the decade never really begins until the second year of that decade. So we were two years in into the 80s using that as a yardstick. And unfortunately, a lot of 80s records, singles and albums, they're blighted by production techniques. That There's sometimes some great songs, but the production sounds very dated now. And the one thing you can say about 90125 is that it has not dated at all. That could have been done yesterday. And that I put down to Trevor Horn. He's an amazing producer that does not album does not sound dated in any way at all. The fact no. that they're all great songs on there is beside the point because a great song is always going to be a great song, but some great songs were ruined or sound ruined now in comparison by the production techniques and the production techniques on 90125 definitely are absolutely spot on. They haven't dated in any way at all. And I think that is a, a, a very big tribute and a very big tick in the box for Trevor Horn. Okay, uh, Jeff, your number two. Okay, my number two. It's a, it's already been put out there already. I had a hard choice between number one and number two, but my number two is close to the edge. Again, you know, it, it's it's been said and uh, to an extent already, but you know, there's so much on that album that is actually a, you know a real blueprint for for what we know as progressive rock going forward. You know, the combination of acoustic and electric keyboards and guitars. Again, the arrangements, longer tracks, the virtuosity, the moogs, the mellotrons, everything that Rick, um, you know, does best um, is typified on there. And again, as has been said before, the songs that make up that album, all of them, um, you know, have been the bedrock of Yes's set lists pretty much since that time. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's virtually not been a concert that a new and I hasn't been played played at, and 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 usually with one or other of the other tracks on it. Um, and to an extent, you can sort of see, um, you know, wh- wh- why Bill, Bill Bruford was going, well, where, where do we go from here? Because, yeah. <laughs> because it, to me, it's it's the album that just fully achieved, um, you, you know, everything that had gone before from, from the band formed. Um, and it's not to say that, uh, you know, every, everything else afterwards, you know, great music great material that to me just in the genre is a is an absolute standout album well it's amazing because it was their fifth album you know mm. it was really early fifth album in three years right so it's it's really right at the beginning where they were just 
firing like insane material was coming out all at once and it's it ends up being their best work to this day it's amazing well steve howe said that the longest track i think they'd done was probably starship trooper before that and it's like that was quite long but he said then we're going to do something like nearly 20 minutes long double the length and he said we were really pushing the boundaries there and and bill bruford also commented about the album he said um at that point he said I didn't think I could make another a good album or an album as good as that. But yes, I think that's as good as it's going to be for me. I, I think it's time to move on. Yeah. But also he said, I remember in the early days, and he said, I, I can remember falling asleep uh, on one of the night sessions and Chris Squire is playing over just four bars of music. And he said, I woke up and Chris is still playing the same four <laughs> bars of music. And he said, I thought then, you know, this is, there's got to be a better way. And he said, the other thing that worried me is he said that when they started splicing the multi-track tape, he said, when, this, when, this, when they start splicing the two-inch tape, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> so he said, I thought that, you know, it's great. Thankfully, it all worked out to be really good. But uh, he said, you know, I thought, I'm not going to make a better album with Yes than this. And I think it's time for me to move on, which is what he did with King Crimson, of course, which is probably the best musical decision he could ever make. Yeah. Because I'm not altogether sure Bill, I, I really don't think Bill would have been suited to Tales from Topographic Oceans, with the greatest respect to Bill Bruford, who's a wonderful musician. But um, I think he made the right decision. Too, John? I can remember in 1978 when Tormato came out not being very impressed and and I think it's in hindsight that I still there's still like parts of Tormato there's some great songs on there but unfortunately it it, it kind of followed a really really good album which was going for the one and when drama came out of course we knew by then that the Buggles had joined how <laughs> dare they a pop band joining yes and when I heard the album, of course, the opening track is Machine Messiah, and I thought, hang on, that sounds like yes. And it was, because Eddie offered to come back briefly, help with the uh, backing tracks. The sleeve was designed by Roger Dean, and it sounded like yes. And I thought, yeah, but there's something slightly different here. And it, yes, it actually moved it on again. But again, people moan about the buggles coming in. What a lot of people don't realize that at one point, yes, was they were actually considering just being a three-piece, Alan, Chris, and Steve. Hmm. And it was only because uh, Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn were managed by Brian Lane as well as the Buggles. And uh, they thought, well, because Trevor Horn was a huge um, yes fan, as was uh, Jeff Downs. And they'd written this song, You Can Fly From Here. 
And Chris said, well, let's hear it. And, and of course, Trevor kept saying, well, where's, where's John and Rick? And Well, don't worry about that. We'll sort that. And, and then, then they said, well, actually, they're not in the band anymore. Do you fancy joining? <laughs> <laughs> and Chris said, that was great. But he said, then I had to go and persuade Jill Sinclair, who was Trevor's wife, that, to allow him to join the band. <laughs> but uh, he said it all worked out. But I, I remember hearing Machine Messiah and thinking, it's going to be great. And when I went to see them on, on the tour, and I saw them a few times on the tour, and it was a bit hit and miss. And I've never understood why people pay good money to go and boo and uh, shout things out at bands. But it was happening on the UK tour. And, and as Jeff said, well, when we played London, they were even booing at the Rainbow. And I think, I think he explained it quite well. He said, I was the third or fourth, I think it was the, um, the fourth keyboard player in Yes at the time. So he said, the pressure wasn't really on me uh, because they'd already replaced the keyboard player four times. <laughs> they'd never replaced John Anderson. And he said that was that was the, the yeah. difficult thing. And and you'll know this, Jeff. He said one of the reviews said it's like yes being fronted by Ronnie Corbett. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and I remember that review it was in the sounds actually. And um, it was very unkind because I think Trevor did a wonderful job. And I just think that Trevor's problem, and he agreed, he said, if I'd have, if I could do it again, he said, I'd actually take out, I'd get a voice coach. He said, because I didn't realize singing live was, you know, he said, sometimes I just overreached myself. And, yeah. and, and Chris Squire said, there are times when he was great. He said, I remember once in Texas, I told him, you sang And You and I tonight as well. In fact, maybe better than John Anderson would have done it. But he said he just wasn't consistent enough. And, and Trevor agreed. He said, I'd never toured at that level before. And that was my problem. I over sort of... I oversimplified it and thought, oh, it's going to be okay. And he said it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, I, I'm so is, your, is your number two drama then? It is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I figured. I'm, okay. I'm fairly sure that uh, based on the fact that it, it, it anything hasn't ever appeared, but to me, one of the, the great holy grails of, 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 of Yes fandom for me would be, you know, a proper live drama recording or indeed film. Um, and I, I think even whenever they, they put together the In A Word uh, live box set, they they even they just use some sort of tidied up FM radio tracks. I, I, I can, I can tell you why that is. I can tell you why that is. They were going to do one. Right. And they were gonna, it was going to be recorded at Madison Square Garden. And there was some deal done that brought, they, they, of course, as Jeff said, there was always a deal going on with Yes. Mm-hmm. And he said the deal was on. We were going to record it properly, 24 track. And then the deal was off. So that all the equipment was shipped out. And then the next day, the day before the gig, the deal was on again. But we didn't get, have time to get all the recording gear back in. So, and it was for the King Biscuit Flower Hour. So he said well, all we had to do was a stereo feed out of the desk. And mm-hmm. any live songs from the drama tour come from uh, Steve Howe's personal archive. And it's funny because the Going for the One tour wasn't filmed or recorded either, which is odd. Um, I know there's a, there's a film of um, the band in Glasgow, but that was actually made by Steve Howe's brother. And it was only a purely amateur thing. Let's, let's film it and see how we get on. But wow. um, it's, yeah, I agree. I would love to have heard a live album from uh, the drama tour and maybe seen some footage.
right. So my number one uh, has been mentioned again, but I think I, I, you know, I had to put it there, which is uh, close to the edge. I think we spoke about all the merits of it. Um, you know, real quick, just going back and rediscovering the classic catalog. I just have been over the many years uh, impressed with that album. And finally, when I got to see it live, it sort of solidified it for me because you know, stuff like the title track makes no sense on how it came together, and yet they pull it off live somehow. Five people playing completely different things in completely different time signatures, and it works, and it's genius. So uh, I'm going to keep it short because we talked about it a lot, but that's my number one choice. Mm. And I think that album, I think that that album probably had a big hand in defining progressive rock music as well. Mm. Yeah, a lot of people uh, forget that. You know, mm. all, uh, not just the songs, even the 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 coolness simplicity of the album cover is cool you know the the groundbreaking of you know what one song covering one side and only three tracks and everything about it they sort of were trying new things and that that kind of stuff is what has things stay at the top for so many years you know um all right so jeff what's your number one i'm actually I'm curious i don't know where you're going. <laughs> well this is this is my other curveball and i suppose uh, <laughs> the union album is not my number one. <laughs> um, no, so my my number one album is the Yes Songs live album. I think if I had to be left, you know, with one Yes album, that would be the one that I would pick. Um, and you know, if you look at it on the face of it, I mean, John mentioned that his first experience was this. The album itself is not particularly well recorded, but the performances are absolutely electric, and it, it's why. I am um, comfortable with a top five that doesn't include the Yes album because virtually all the Yes album tracks are are on this one and right. played with, I think, a renewed vigor and energy that Alan White brings to the band. It's also, of course, got all of the Close to the Edge album on it. Um, in fact, the other night, I actually put on my, my vinyl of Yes songs and just listening to the start of Close to the Edge. And I actually went over and checked the turntable to see what was it on at the right speed because they, they are play, it is played so fast and with such amazing, you know, accuracy and energy. Um, so, you know, I'm great, you know, again, I don't have the fragile on my list, but at least if I've got this album, I've got a brilliant version of Heart of the Sunrise, you know, good, great versions of Roundabout. Um, you know, the ultimate, I think, version of The Fish, uh, you know, turning it from a, sort of album filling ditty into a full kind of bass and drums exploration um you know and you know great versions of you know i've seen all good people perpetual change so to me you know it's 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 the one album that if i was to say this sort of sums up an awful lot of what yes is about that would that would be the one that would be number one for me i agree with you there to be honest with you and i also think as well um, the packaging has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. I remember when that came out, I poured over that sleeve for hours. I'd play it and I'd pour over that sleeve for hours and look at the photos, the credits. And I think you're right, the Sonic side of things is not the best. And Alan White's not a big fan because he said, I'd only just joined the band and I, I would have liked a bit more time under my belt. But he said it captures the moment. And, and the other funny thing is, well, you know, you're probably aware of all the Pangeric reissues with all the extra stuff on things like that and the mm. Stephen Wilson remixes. Pangeric wanted to do Yes songs, but unfortunately the master tapes have gone missing. 
Well, so they can't do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that at some point, because these things, you know, they're mislaid. Like, for instance, they've, they recently, in the last few years, found that the recordings, the multi-track recordings for the QPR concerts, and I'm hoping that the same can sort of happen for Yes Sonnets because I would love to hear it remixed by Stephen Wilson. Yeah. I think if anybody can sort of uh, put another a, a slant on it and bring it right up to date, I think Stephen Wilson could do it with Yes Sonnets. But you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's a defining moment. For well, what's, what's cool about it, too, I mean, the track listing alone, it's like a greatest hits. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it captures those three stellar albums that preceded it, all the great songs from it. Um, yeah, I mean, that that should be the they could do that tour right now with just those songs and mm. get away with it just fine yeah i think you're right yeah absolutely nice choice and a nice curveball but i think that's a good inclusion John, let's see what you have at number one. Okay, well, my number one has moved up from your number three. My number one is going for the one. All right. And it's my favorite Yes album for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, it's the classic lineup back together. In other words, uh, Wakeman, White, Squire, Howe, and Anderson. And I think it's the best of both worlds because we've had two albums previous which had just been long pieces. And this was a good mix of the longer tracks and the shorter tracks. And I, I must say that the cover is not the greatest cover in the world. It, it was done by Hypnosis, as was the following album, Tomato. But it's okay. It was very of the times. But musically, I don't think there is a wasted moment on this album. I think every track is a winner. And it's hard to find an album where every track is a winner. I mean, there'll always be a few tracks that you maybe skip or, well, I'm not that big a fan of that one, but every single track for me on Going For The One is an absolute winner. And that is why it's my favorite Yes album. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, is it the, uh, that and Close To The Edge are the, the two albums we each have. So yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I would, I would agree there. And I think the the other thing about it is I didn't say this when I was talking about it. I don't think is that, you know, all of the five songs are incredibly different from each other. You know, I, I, you know, you've got the the bombast of Awaken. You've got Turn of the Century, which is very very arranged, but is more acoustic and lighter and builds. And then you know you've got Going for the One, the full on, you know, just straight rock song. Yeah, as as straight a rock song as yes can manage you've got parallels which is you know the organ it's sort of orchestral and you've got wondrous stories which is a very sort of light uh flowy john again slightly acoustic track you know it's it's just a, a really really varied um album as well 
Yeah, it's an easy it's an easy listen. You know, you could put that thing on and, and, yeah. and like you're saying, the songs in the beginning aren't that long and and they just sort of breeze by and, and they're pleasant and you just enjoy it and it's and it's dynamic and everything that's going on and then you have the epic ending song which kind of can can hypnotize you. It's it's a really good listen from beginning to end. Yeah. And I think as well with the with with the actual album as a whole, it I mean, and a lot of people I probably don't understand this, but the programming of the album, the track, the way the tracks are actually programmed on the album, it, that's very, very important. And I think that's exactly right for going for the one as well. And I think as well, because if you think about it, Parallels came from uh, a solo project of Chris's. And I also think that uh, on, on the title track, I mean, I don't think Yes had ever rocked as hard as that at the time. I think, wow, everyone was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, some people said that's Yes's punk album. I wouldn't go that <laughs> far. But, I mean, they, as, as they say in America, they kicked ass on that particular track. You know? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I, I like, um, you know, Chris's bass is really up front on that one too, which is really, I mean, he always had this unique cutting uh, bass sound that really stood up, stood out front on most of the recordings, but especially on that song. Which have I, you ever heard the, Have you ever heard the backing Chris's backing vocals on "Going for the One"? Yeah, they're absolutely. What amazing. is he singing? Yeah. Even Trevor <laughs> Horn said, "Yeah, what is he singing on that?" It's like sounds so off the wall and yet so right. Yeah, there's a, there's film around of uh, of the "Going for the One" sessions I've seen on seen it on yeah. YouTube, and you know Chris is. That he's actually sitting with an acoustic guitar recording that the the backing yeah. vocals in that track, and you're going, you know, I mean, it definitely shows his his choir boy training that you yes. are you're singing something that musically, to you know, it's not kind of normal, and you know, a normal melody or a normal timing, but yet he, you know, he just does yeah. it to perfection. I mean, again, with pe- people. You know, probably it's you've talked about fish out of water. You know, Chris was mm. an, an incredible musical musician if there's if there's such a thing um you know well, and he did have all of that training behind him um people yeah. people credit you know rick for having that and alan was involved in mm. a lot of arrangements too you know but chris yes, in yes. particular had you know had an incredible strength in that stuff well you mentioned the the film on youtube and i would direct anyone to that because you go and listen and you think what on earth is this? it's not gonna work and yet when you hear it all together yeah. i mean it's like a, a complete counterpoints to what the rest of the band are doing and it's like yeah. and yet it fits at like a glove absolutely yeah. so to the vision that he must have had for that because i'm sure he came up with that melody for the for the harmony mm. um you know that's a that's a huge talent at work there i can't think of a, a better twosome than the two of you to have on this <laughs> and john your stories and knowledge is absolutely unparalleled to this band thank you so much yeah. for, for uh sharing that with us I appreciate Thank that. Thank you. Really. Oh, my pleasure. And it's again, uh, to uh, please plug your book again. Uh, when, can, where can people get it? Is it, is it? Well, um, we, I think we've sold out a dialogue, which was the limited edition, uh, but it's coming out and you can get it on Amazon and it's called yes, time and a word. And it's uh, obviously a lot cheaper than the, the limited editions were. And um, it's available on Amazon, and it should be. I think later this summer you can pre-order it now. It's called "Time and a Word: The Yes Interviews" by John Kirkman. And uh, yeah, and I also have a Genesis book if people are interested in Genesis. Yes, absolutely. That's coming out, and you can find that at my website, which is johnkirkman.co.uk. John is J-O-N. The, I do have the <laughs> deluxe dialogue, but I actually want to want to wrap it in uh, 
and and and, and put it away and keep it good because it's, it's, a, it's an ama- it's an amazing book and uh, it's 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 glorious. But I just don't. I want it to remain as pristine as I can manage. Yeah. Well, this is the thir- this is the third edition of the book because it, so it's sold very very well and people have been very very kind about it. They've uh, there's a lot of myths that have been busted in the book because I, I know the guys in Yes, I know all of them, work with all of them on lots of different projects. And I think that they trust me, God bless them, but the fools, but no, they do. <laughs> and um, no, they, they, they were very, very honest, very, very honest throughout. And, and uh, I was only asked to take two things out and I won't tell you which two members asked me to take two little, it was literally just two small things out. And, uh, but everything else is straight from the horse's mouth. And I, there's a lot of myths busted in there. So, and a lot of fans really enjoyed it. And they've been very, very kind. I've received lots and lots of letters from all over the world. And uh, yeah, I'm quite humbled by that because, you know, it's, it's, it was a lot of work and I put my heart and soul into it. And uh, I like to think that that shows, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Listen, anybody listening, if you need to know anything about Yes, I'm sure you'll find it from this man. And uh, of course, you can also see John uh, again on this year's uh, Cruise to the Edge, which is in February out of Tampa, mm-hmm. Florida. I will also be there as well. And uh, Yes, of course, will be there once again. And uh, a slew of amazing other bands. So it's another reason to join us on that ship. So uh, thank you guys. Thank you very much. We'll see everybody again uh, very soon on the next podcast or whatever else. Please check the progreport.com for all your information and we will see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you.